This is Unorthodox, Universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my fellow hosts. They are tablet editor-at-large, Liel Lebovich. Ahalan wasahalan. And his boss, tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. You know, thank you. It's important that we all remember that every now and then. The boss of all the bosses. <laughs> We're actually, in the newsletter this week, just going to post the whole Tablet Magazine org chart so we know who answers to whom. That would entail creating a Tablet Magazine org chart, which I believe... <laughs> 12 years later, we still don't have. There's a lot of dotted lines. I have a dotted line to Liel and a, uh, a hyphenated line to Stephanie. And we all have a dotted line to Hashem. This is how it works. <laughs> That's right. We all work full-time for Hashem at Tablet Magazine. That's all we can hope for, really. We have no Gentiles on the show this week. Not a one. There's actually There will be no Gentile vibe or mojo on the show this week, but we have two Jewish guests. We actually, this is important that our listeners know that. We, we did the reverse of the Chabad thing. We, we actually do stand in street corner say, excuse me, are you Jewish, and if you say yes, like, well, you can't be on our show because we're looking for Gentiles. Excuse me, are you a Gentile, please? Do you like white bread? Excuse me. How do you feel about mayonnaise? Yes? No? <laughs> we really, like, leaned heavily into the, the duosphere for these two guests, Mark, right? Will you tell us who they are? We really, really did. First Jewish guest this week is Shira Haas, the Israeli actress known to pretty much all of you as the young girl in, in Shdisol, and then as the star of the other unorthodox. The star of the lesser unorthodox, we should say. Responsible for some very puzzled people in our Facebook group who thought that they were going to talk about leaving the Satmar community and found out that... Finally, they can. This <laughs> one's for them. <laughs> and our other Jew this week is uh, my brother, Daniel James Oppenheimer. He doesn't use the J. You know, nobody uses middle initials anymore in their bylines. And I was pushing for him to be Daniel J. Oppenheimer. He could have been DJ. I think it's strong, like old Hill Street Blues star Daniel J. Travanti. But he didn't. He's just Daniel Oppenheimer, but he has a new book out. It's called Far From Respectable, Dave Hickey and His Art. And we jammed. Would you say we jammed, Stephanie? It was very fun. And we will not call him the lesser Oppenheimer, because that would be unkind. It would be unkind and also kind of untrue, because what he <laughs> lacks in seniority, he makes up for in, uh, you know, he edged me out on the SATs and had a much more distinguished high school athletic career than I did. But who's counting? If the Oppenheimers were a boy band... <laughs> Which ah. one is every single one of you? You're like the Justin Timberlake. I thought we were going Harry Styles. Who's the Zane? Who's the Liam? You're you're the Paul, is what <laughs> we're saying. Is Daniel the John? Uh, yes, actually. Yes, I am the Paul. I'm a little more poppy, maybe a little more superficial. My hooks are a little easier to sing to, but Daniel ultimately is a little bit deeper. I think that's right. And then your sister is, is Ringo. My sister is Cynthia Lennon. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Guys, I ran out of Beatles things to say after I said Harry Styles, Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> That was some third-order meta self-deprecation, Stephanie. Anyway, it's going to be great this week. That's what's going on. We caught up with my bro. We caught up with Shira Haas. It's good times. It's good times. These are good times indeed, because this Tamas, as happens every four or so years, is time for the Euro Soccer Championship, which is the second most important event on the global soccer calendar after, of course, the Mondial the World Cup, which means that I have been doing really little except for watching what you plebes so charmingly call soccer, but we all know what the game is really called, which also opens up the same problem that I have in these international tournaments, which is a very deep problem of, of who to root for, right? You start off by saying, oh, like maybe Italy. Ah, no, destroyed the temple. Maybe England. No, the British mandate. Spain and Portugal, the Inquisition. And so you go through this... <laughs> entire kind of... Which European country is good for the Jews? Right. And then be like, everyone for bringing the Jews at, at one point or another. And then you just say, you know, like, ah, fuck it. We just root for Germany. 
<laughs> at, least, at least I'll win. <laughs> I'll have some satisfaction out of it. Wow, did not see that going there. You did not see it going there? <laughs> when you said the most important competition in the world going on this week, I 100% thought it was going to be about Eurovision. I thought it was going to be about the song contest. The Eurovision was two weeks ago. It was two weeks ago. <laughs> yes, and Italy won that one. Handily. They did? They won with a band that looks as if they had just right now, right this instant, discovered the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but the Chili Peppers from like 89. And be like, do you know about this? This is very good. We sing like this. And they won with this completely ridiculous yet extremely catchy song. But back to to soccer for a second. It is an absolute delight. I love that the games, now that I've become a, a baseball fan and spend so much of my day watching baseball, I'd forgotten how delightful it was that a game actually ends like exactly on time. Like that you know when the game is going to end. It's a 90-minute game. There is a clock to it. And at the end of it, there is a winner. It's fantastic. And those Germans really keep things running well. The so. Germans are like a machine. So, you know, there, growing up in Israel, there was a saying that I, I will teach you this very wise saying. The saying is, they play soccer for 90 minutes. And the meaning is, it ain't over till it's over. Or it's not over until the fat lady sings. Like, there's always hope, right? And then sometime in the 90s, to reflect current world events, someone changed the saying to, soccer, you play for 90 minutes, and then the Germans win. <laughs> Do they win everything? They haven't last time around, but they're looking very sharp. What's the soccer stitch in Israel? Strong to very strong. We can never get anywhere because as soon as we have like one victory, we start behaving like we're basically… Like Knesset members? Real Madrid. Right. <laughs> we can't have a winning team for the same reason we can't have a government. But we love it. Liel, you keep adding sports that you're a fan of. You know, you, you grew up, you were into soccer and basketball. You come I here, you pick up baseball. Sports. And then you took up ice hockey, which I thought was going to be the last holdout. What are you adding next? I mean, now that, now that ice hockey has fallen, toppled into your camp, I mean… Curling? Well, Olympics are coming up, so there's a lot of things you could really dip into. If two children were standing in a street corner and, like, throwing a ball around, like, I would spend $10 and, like, sit for four hours and watch it. Whatever type of <laughs> sports is out there, I will consume it. This is actually one for our listeners. I would like someone to call in, 914-570-4869. Now that you, the J. Crew, have successfully turned Liel into an ice hockey fan, which we thought was undoable, what next for him? Stephanie, what's going on with you? If there was anything going on with me, I would not remember it. I'm currently like eight months pregnant and packing to move my apartment and I cannot retain any information. So I, I don't know. I don't know. Things are good. Things are good. Things are good. <laughs> I All think, right. I think, I don't know. I can't remember anything specific. I am so excited for your baby to be born on my birthday. The due date auspiciously close to my birthday. This is really an exciting time for me. And this is exciting for me because I'll finally know, I think, maybe when your birthday is. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of me, Friday, I was on the Amtrak heading south toward D.C. Rebecca was visiting a friend in Potomac, Maryland, and we decided to have a little Amtrak fun together. I, I She said, Dad, why don't you come with me? So I said, okay. Said no teen ever. Right. It was amazing. <laughs> like, I, it's as if I'm trolling all other parents of teens. Yes, my daughter said, it'd be fun to spend some time with you. So, Dad, I appreciate you so much, and I am so grateful for all that you've done for me. Why don't you accompany me on this outing? But there we are the next day on Amtrak, and she's sitting across the aisle, and a guy's sitting next to me. We're not, we're not next to each other, so I have a different seatmate. And the guy must have, he must have caught sight of a word in what I was typing. I don't think he was looking over my shoulder, but I think he saw what might have been on my laptop screen, which it being me was probably rabbi. I was about to say, either rabbi or Hitler, but there's really no in between. Right. German. Trains. Satmar. Moyle. Trains. <laughs> Amsterdam. Bar mitzvah. Excuse me, sir. Are you a neo-Nazi rabble rouser or are you a Jewish journalist? <laughs> That's my favorite game. Exactly where he was at. And he just couldn't help himself. 
says to me, excuse me, could I ask what you do for a living? Long story short, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> he's this guy of Jewish ancestry whose parents became evangelical Christians, but he always felt connected to Judaism. He's about 30 and works in the for-profit sector. But in his spare time, reads Walter Benjamin Marcuse and Noam Chomsky. And he's finishing up a 10,000-word treatise based on his long email correspondence with Noam Chomsky that started when he was 18. And he's very interested in Chomsky, Judaism, and the Holocaust Museum, which he is on the junior board of patrons of. He's like, you know how big philanthropies have like their board and then they have a junior board of people in their 20s and 30s. Yeah, where they groom them. Where they groom, they can't give quite enough money. It's called, it's called the Lipstadt Youth. (laughs) (laughs) So we end up talking and, you know, he's going to pitch stuff to Tablet and maybe we're going to get him as a Tablet fellow in the fall. And it was just like, boy, I mean, this was, it was the greatest seatmate experience. It's like a real meet cute, a seat cute. Did you just coin that? A seat cute? Yeah. Guys, my brain still works. I still got it. But Nick, I'm not kidding. That has potential. Like a seat cute. But was your daughter like so embarrassed while she was watching you talk to a stranger next to you? Always. Always. (laughs) She's looking over at me like, that's my dad. Always ends up in some Jewy conversation with some evangelical weirdo. (laughs) That's the Jewish weirdos, the Christian weirdos. They all find my dad. Also, what a dreaded question. What do you do for a living? It's like, well, what do you do for Because I don't know. <laughs> Once a week, I get together with friends and I tell a bunch of Holocaust jokes. <laughs> like, really? It's totally That's true. a job description? Yeah. News of the Jews. Stephanie, you are our QAnon correspondent. You want to update us on Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene? Really appreciate all the stories you've been throwing to me lately. Um, This one is from CNN. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene on Monday apologized for her offensive comments, offensive is in quotes, comparing Capitol Hill mask-wearing rules to the Holocaust after visiting the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, where your friend is on the junior board of, Mark. Yes. She says, there are words that I have said, remarks that I've made that I know are offensive, and for that I'd like to apologize. The Georgia Republican said, adding that she had taken a lesson from her father who died in April about owning up to mistakes. So I should own it. I made a mistake. So basically, she was one of the people being like, if you tell me to wear a mask, that's like wearing a gold star. That was the first thing she said. She didn't even say yellow star. She said gold star. Do you think she thought that the stars that the Nazis made the Jews wear were made of gold? That we had to melt our gold down and wear gold like sheriff's stars? The whole thing started in May when she said, you know, we can look back at a time in history where people were told to wear a gold star and they were definitely treated like second class citizens. So much so that they were put in trains and taken to gas chambers in Nazi Germany. So Marjorie Taylor Greene, thank you for acknowledging that the gas chambers were real. The Holocaust was real, which is like, I just say great. <laughs> Small victories. She did her apology tour to the Holocaust Museum and she has apologized. Look, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you haven't apologized till you've come on unorthodox. And also, does she still believe in the laser beams from space? Listen, I'm not going to be cynical at all here. Like, this is exactly what we want. You know, someone says something like, I'm freaking believably stupid, then takes the time, learns a little bit, which definitely suggests ignorance was involved. And then, you know, comes up and owns it. Like, this is precisely the type of behavior that we should celebrate and encourage. And, and here are words I didn't think we would 
say on this year's show. Marjorie Taylor Greene, thanks. I have a question. Would you give her a gold star for her apology? She gets a gold star for her apology. Because <laughs> think about how few people do it these days. When's the last time you heard someone say something extremely stupid and be like, you know what? Took a little bit of time, did the thing, and I'm good now. I don't have the article in front of me. Did she name what she had done wrong? Or did she just go to the Holocaust Museum and say, I'm sorry? No, she said, she said what I said was offensive. Marjorie Taylor Greene has a long history of stupid things. Has she owned the space lasers? Has she owned the stars? Or did she just own the mask holocaust? How many stupid things can you own with one? Like, I mean, come on. You would need like I, you a six-parter for this. She went to the place. She did the thing. Not to be overly dramatic, but if Hitler showed up one day and was like, look, I'm really sorry about the gold stars. Yeah, we would say, I'm really sorry. great, there's some other stuff going on here. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is about the worst of the worst of the worst. So we're compar- comparing her to Hitler now. I'm comparing to Hitler now, exactly. <laughs> I just think, like, I'm not sure that her, her sheets have been wrung out to dry yet. Let's put it that way. Her pointy sheets have been running out to dry yet. I will say that she does know how to get press attention. <laughs> I don't think she's trying in her defense. Um, yeah, look, she didn't have to do that. I mean, the bar is very low. She did not have to go to the Holocaust Museum. She's like, I saw Daniel's story, the kids exhibit, and I really right. understand it now. I think she has to watch three after-school specials about the Holocaust, read Benny Morris's Righteous Victims, go on Birthright, and then come on our podcast. That's my plan. That's oh, my Oh, I know this is like her. a bigger discussion, but do we have to have her on? So she would meet a cute Israeli soldier in, in another seat <laughs> cute on the bus? <laughs> no, she'd like sit next to a Haredi man who wouldn't sit next to her. Guys, let's get to the really important news. Ben Sales of Jewish Telegraphic Agency absolutely killing it this week with a fabulous story answering the question we all want to know. To quote the JTA, Israel's new prime minister is probably the first one who has stuck a wad of chewing gum to his head right before a public event. That's a great lead. Probably not. Probably not. We've had Eud Olmert. I mean, come on. (laughs) Naftali Bennett, who took office this week, is the first prime minister in the country's history to regularly wear a kippah, known to 87% of Americans as a yarmulke, or a Jewish ritual head covering. He also... Ooh, skullcap. He also puts on phylacteries every morning. (laughs) Unlike his secular predecessors, he identifies as a religious Zionist and practices modern Orthodox Judaism, which requires men to cover their heads. He's also bald. That makes it a challenge to keep the small crocheted disc on the back of his head where it's traditionally worn. The traditional methods of securing a kippah, bobby pins, and metal hair clips are of no use to Bennett, yet it stays on. His adhesive of choice is a product invented and sold beginning in 2013 by Chaim Levine, a 65-year-old bus driver living in an Orthodox suburb of Tel Aviv. It's called the Kippah Keeper. Uh, The Kippah Keeper. And it's made of reusable, hypoallergenic, double-sided medical tape this is no, it's actually not an ad for the Keepa Keeper. It's a it's a really serious piece of journalism that I think honestly, you go to Kiddish, one of the things people are talking about is if you're bald, how do you keep the keep on? I'll just say that my friend Hurwitz says that's why you have to wear the Bukharan yarmulke that comes down and goes around your head. That's the answer. Which producer Josh Cross is wearing right now. Although I did ask a person who is similarly as endowed as Bennett is with similar features. And he said it stays on thanks to sweat and gravity. The Jewish story, sweat and gravity. <laughs> we just keep going. <laughs> so here's the thing that we're not talking about. Whoever invented the yarmulke, it's like the greatest hack for balding Jewish men. Because mm. it sits on the exact spot where you might have the beginnings of a bald spot. 
or the ends of a bald spot. Although, hold on. Because where it sits is actually a major indicator of what flavor of religious you are. So like how high up versus how far back. In Israel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There'll, there'll be some people who wear it all the way up front and some people all the way in the back. I like the people who wear it all the way in the back. Like, I can do anything. Also, the size of it. I mean, look at Naftali. But Naftali Bennett's is the size of, it's like not even a salad plate. It's like a bread plate. It's like a teeny tiny little thing. It's like a little teacup. But but even though that is among the most important stories of the week, Liel, I, I believe you are you're gesturing wildly that there's an even more important one that we should end with. This one too, straight out of Israel, is the story of one Sarah Hogarth, an Ola, a new immigrant to Israel from down under, from Australia, who, alas, suffered the greatest tragedy that a member of the Australian diaspora, the Australian Gallus, if you will, could suffer. She ran out of Vegemite. And so... She posted a picture of an empty Vegemite jar on the Australians Living in Israel Facebook group, which of course exists, and hope for the best. What happened next will shock you. Producer Josh Cross has the story. Well, it, it, it was on an Australians in Israel Facebook page. The voice you're hearing is Paul Griffiths, Australia's ambassador to Israel and Vegemite hero. And there was a call out from a young mum. She put a photo on the page saying she'd run out of Vegemite. And because of COVID and postal services are down a bit, travels down a lot, obviously, so she couldn't get any Vegemite. And I thought, I've got a couple of jars of it sitting in my food cupboard. So I thought, why not? I was actually on my way to Jerusalem anyway to go to a uh, farewell for President Rivlin. So uh, it was a pretty easy stop to drop off some Vegemite and help her out. I'd them for my kids, but my kids hadn't eaten them. And I thought, hey, here's someone who's desperate. And the mum had a, a daughter, Sophie, who, who loves Vegemite on her pita bread. And uh, so it seemed a shame not to help someone out. Now, of course, the Australian ambassador to Israel is way too busy to be following any old Facebook group. No, I was I was on the group, but I don't. I tend to not advertise. <laughs> Otherwise, everyone will be messaging me. <laughs> now, I guess. <laughs> but spreads made from leftover brewer's yeast weren't the only bizarre things Australians were requesting. We've got a lot of requests since then. Foster's beer, which won't surprise anybody, but I, I don't know that I can get any of that. But I do have a plan, a second state under plan. I've managed to get hold of some, you know, other things that we can distribute. So um, there will be another a meeting with someone. I needed more answers. I demanded he explain to me what is Vegemite and more importantly, why? <laughs> no, I can't. Look, I honestly can't. It's it's such a unique taste, right? It's it's got that sort of sort of salty and malty taste. It's a bit bitter. And it's one of those things that people just grow up with, right? You know, when you're a kid, you start, uh, it's, it's very savoury. And so when you're a kid and you get it on your toast in Australia, you sort of become used to it. And uh, it became popular. I mean, it's almost 100 years old now. I think it was 1922 or 23 it was invented. So it's almost 100 years old. It became popular in World War II, I know, because it was it was shipped out to Australian troops um, who were in the war. And then in the 50s, there was a bit of a jingle song that um, Happy Little Vegemite that it became very popular. Whether it's the indoctrination of children via song, 
or soldiers via MREs. Vegemite is clearly serious business. So serious that Australia's ambassador to Israel knows the correct founding date of the company off the top of his head. That said, I'd had enough of the political angle, so I needed to turn elsewhere to find out the more important things. What is Vegemite good for, and in particular, is it good for the Jews? I turned to Nomi Kaltman, tablet contributor and professional Australian Jew. Well, Vegemite is a nostalgic Australian spread. Everybody grows up with it. It's salty, it's tasty, it's yeasty. It was created originally by using the offcuts from beer brewer who had leftover yeast and decided, you know, maybe we could make a spread with this. But what about the Jews? Australian Jews love Vegemite. Even at one point in 2004, it went off the kosher list. We have a list in Australia and the uh, major kashrut authority wasn't able to retain its kashrut status for Vegemite. And it was mass hysteria. There was outrage. People wrote letters. It reached the highest levels of Australian parliament where uh, different members who represent Jewish electorates were advocating on behalf of people in this country saying it is completely unacceptable that Vegemite would not retain its kosher status. At the time, there was panic buying. If you think Corona was bad, you weren't here for Vegemite gate in Australia. People would buy 30 or 40 jars. The the shopping centers, their shelves were stripped bare. Vegemite is amazing. If it's good for Australian Jews, why not American Jews? I don't think you're eating it right because Americans and the world at large doesn't understand how to eat Vegemite properly. You use it like peanut butter and chocolate spread. That's not how it's done in Australia. It's probably like three quarters butter and then a little smear of Vegemite on top of a thick buttered ratio. And unfortunately, Americans will often go for the, you know, peanut butter vibe that's spread it on thickly. And once you've taken a bite, there's no going back. The trauma is real. And just how are Australian Jews incorporating Vegemite into their cuisine? After Passover, if you have leftover matzah, great spread on top of matzah with the right thickness of butter. A lot of people put it in cholent, their Shabbos cholent. Umami is having a comeback. You put Vegemite in cholent, it's the right salt ratio. The taste is delicious. It's like miso, but like maybe a little stronger almost. Very salty, very tasty. But there is one bakery here called Zelda, run by Mariasha Wordiga. And she has, I think on that three or four occasions, made Vegemite babka, okay? Now, I know Americans will be absolutely horrified. You're thinking, I like the chocolate, I like the thickness. She does it with Vegemite. And Vegemite is most commonly paired with cheese. So she'll make a Vegemite and cheese babka. And I actually spoke to Mariasha and I said, does it sell well? Did you enjoy it? And, you know, what was the feedback? While Mariasha herself is a Vegemite fan, she doesn't do cooked Vegemite. She doesn't really like cooked Vegemite, but she has confirmed with me that all her Vegemite babkas sold out and people love them. But how do we know this expert, Nomi Kaltman, can truly be trusted? You will see this in Tablet. I've got a very important piece for the American Jewish cultural understanding of the significance of Vegemite, particularly for Australian Jews. It will blow your minds. That was producer and Melbourne correspondent Josh Cross with the story. Can I say, this was the first time ever that I actually understood what an ambassador does. <laughs> otherwise, it strikes me as like a completely useless job. Like you, the foreign ministers or whatever talk among themselves. You don't really need a guy sitting there. Like, what is that guy doing? Like, I never got it. Now I get it. He's helping his people. Getting snacks. I said to speak my language. Smile and give me a bitch
Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Our first Jew of the Week is actress Shira Haas. You know her from Shiesel and Unorthodox, the TV show that sent a thousand curious people into our Facebook group. I talked with her about her roles on these shows as well as in her new movie, Asya. Here's my conversation with Shira Haas. Hi, Shira. How are you? Hi. Hello. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you very much. Absolutely. So um, we're going to get to your movie in just a moment, which I watched last night and loved it so much. Before I do, we have a co-host who's not with us right now, Leah Leibowitz, who grew up in Tel Aviv. And like you, his English is simply stunning. So we always tease him and say, you know, how do Israelis, how do they get such good English? His answer is always just a lot of TV. What was your solution? What's the secret? Was it TV based? Yeah, lots of uh, TV movies. There are not a lot of like dubbing in Israel. So you see the real thing <laughs> from a young age. And I, I learned it since I was seven at school. And I always loved the language in general. You can also see it in my roles. I love languages. I love accents. So I enjoyed also with the English. And I don't know, maybe also like interviews, festivals gave me like confidence, which is I think <laughs> what most people need when it comes to new languages. Just a confident in talking. Absolutely. So you were acting from a fairly young age. And I know that because I saw your work when you were fairly young. Did you, you know, the American stereotype is there's the stage mother, you know, parents were pushing you into it and whipping you and saying you have to support the family so that we can have, you know, the Mercedes <laughs> and the the Dacha by the, the sea. Were your parents involved at the beginning of your career? Or was this all you? Nothing like that, actually. No one from my family come from the industry or push me to this direction. I have a great parents and that's just the cliche of like, do what you love, we're behind you. It's really who they are, lucky me. And I never thought I'll be an actress, actually. I thought it will be something in psychology or like a graphic designer, which I always, was always into, maybe until this day, I don't know. And then I just got to a, a theater major at school. I loved that, but still I wasn't sure if this is what I want to do. And it all changed when a casting director actually approached me on Facebook. <laughs> And then I fell in love with it. It was my first project. I was 16 and a half. Did you go to university or has that not happened yet? It's not happened yet. Okay. So is it, so actors, people who got famous young and then didn't make it to university. They're often stupid. They'll say, <laughs> They're stupid. <laughs> well, again, that's, 
Do you plan to go? Is it like, I'm going to take time off in my 30s and go back for my bachelor's degree? Or do you feel like that ship has sailed? Who knows? I I love learning. I was a good student. I said before, I'm a bit of a nerd. Also, when it comes to acting, I mean, the part that I enjoy the most is the research. (laughs) More than even like a three, two, one action. I love new cultures, new languages. So I always love learning new stuff. So it might happen. And if not university, then definitely like courses. I don't know, stuff to like keep my brain at work. I don't know. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about the research, right? I mean, you have, you're not from a Haredi background yourself, but you've done roles that have dealt with that. In the new movie in Asia, you play someone who comes from a Russian background. What's the research like for these two different communities for you? Every project has its kind of own uh, research. It always starts when I approach a character with reading, reading, reading just the script. Uh, a lot of times, like sort of a Bible of actors, right? Just re-re-reading it and then going into the research. In Unorthodox, it was really listening to lots of interviews, talking with lots of people, seeing references and pictures and talking also, I mean, to anything possible. Also then arriving to Berlin before we started filming, I learned Yiddish with our consultant and our teacher and just getting into it deeply and deeply and ask them so many questions. And then you arrived to the shooting day pretty much ready. In us, it was not really about the community because they are Russian and I needed to learn Russian. And I can tell you for sure that Russian is much harder than Yiddish. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, 100%. I always hear that Russian is harder than everything. I mean, Russian is supposed to be one of the hardest languages to learn. It's a beautiful language, but just so different than anything you're you're familiar with, which Yiddish can be or other languages can be. So it was that, but the community was not a major thing in the movie. It was really more about the emotional journey that the character is going through and also the physical journey, obviously, that the character is going through, talking to doctors and people and reading and having months of rehearsals. So, yeah. Every character is a different approach. Right. I mean, it's not giving away a cliffhanger to say that the character you play has a degenerative muscular disease. And one can imagine that there's a camp of people who say that healthy actors should never be playing people who have disabilities or diseases. Probably unrealistic for this role, I'm guessing, to find someone who had the specific disease being described. But how did you navigate that commitment to people who are suffering from this disease? I mean, did you spend, did you seek out people who had degenerative muscular diseases and say, what's that like? Was it about reading memoirs, watching movies? I mean, that's, that in some ways sounds more difficult to me than learning some Russian. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. First of all, I mean, it was a very open discussion about that, about healthy, what you just said. But the thing is in this movie that it's the illness is progressive. I mean, the character starts in a completely healthy position and then it gets different and worse. But I definitely felt the huge, huge, huge responsibility in playing and portraying this character. I knew that I will never be able to feel or look or be exactly like this thing, but it was important for me to do justice with it and to do it as accurate as possible. And we went to see doctors, really, lots of them, and they were with us through this whole journey. We were sending them like videos as well. We also met a patient that has the same condition that Vika, my character, has. And we talked with her. I've read a lot. We even had this chart, Ruti, the director, and I, that shows kind of like in every scene what exactly Vika is, at, at what condition. And it was really until like the smallest, smallest, smallest details that we could have got to. 
And it was just about being a bit obsessed with it. Like back then you could tell me scene number 38 and I'll be like, yes, it's that scene when that, that, I knew it. Right now I don't, I admit. It's been a while. We were so into it and like lots of months of rehearsals that it was just part of all of us in a way. You know, again, one of the stereotypes we get from TV shows about Hollywood is that when an actor is looking for her next project, she goes to her agent and her agent has dozens of scripts, just piles and piles of scripts and says, you know, in this one, you have to shoot people. In this one, you have to get naked. And this one, you get to play sick. And then you sort of figure out like what's next for your career. How do you pick? Are there a dozen projects and you winnow it down to one? Is it about working with a particular director how did you pick this project? All of the above, right? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I mean, it's it's a good question because it can be sometimes when you're very, I mean, you're so curious to work with someone and it's fascinating for you. It can be a known one or a newcomer that is uh, interesting, or it can be about the character or a script or something that I haven't done. Even like a smaller role, but just a so well-written one. I mean, it can be so much. I think eventually what brings it all to the same place is really about kind of like a feeling that needs Needs to be there because I was talking before about being a bit obsessed right with stuff I mean so in order to keep this obsession which is not a good word maybe uh creativity is a better one up alive you need to have passion to what you do so it's always about this I mean I try when I read something to to understand if it's there and it's usually very obvious if it's there or not and if not then I'm asking myself again and again and seeing the other you know questions that are coming up it's really about that, about doing stuff that I'm, I'm kind of like passionate about that are different to what, what I've done, that are challenging. And to be surrounded with people that are fascinating because it's really a business of people, of communicating. We recently interviewed Noah Tishby, who, of course, fellow Israeli actor and who's now living much of the time, I think most of the time in Los Angeles, but still a very proud Israeli and has written a book about Israel. And I'm curious what America means to somebody who's in the Israeli film and theater community? I mean, is there a sense of that's where the money is? If you want to make it really big, you have to Gal Gadot, you have to like get good English, get those big up Hollywood roles or how international do you feel your career has to be? Or can one have a completely satisfying and, and artistically interesting career just doing roles in Hebrew? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it depends, you know. I know that I want to go and do stuff international as well, of course. We're aiming there, we're, we're doing it. But I know at the same time that I will keep on doing Israeli materials as well, for sure. I mean, Asya, for example, it's one of the most meaningful roles for me that I've ever done, really. And it's a indie, kind of like smaller movie budgeted everything that you can imagine right uh, but it's still i mean this is those are things that i will forever would love to keep on doing and it's 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 really about i mean yeah i mean i don't think there's one way to do that i'm right now i'm in new york at that moment but i'm based in tel aviv and i travel often to la i didn't I haven't moved to la yet but i and i don't know i, I mean i think it's possible also now especially in the last year and a half right but also in the last years everything is so global People are also fascinated with different stories from international ones. You see it in Stiesel, in Fauda, Casa de Papel. The world has changed. It's so interesting. You mentioned Fauda. You mentioned Stiesel. Of course, Srugim was very big in America. Israel is being brought to America by this culture very recently. As an American, it's so weird to me that I have all of these non-Jewish friends, all these Christian friends who all of a sudden love this Israeli TV. I mean, but the impression they get, they might get of it is like, you're either secret agents in Fauda, you know, undercover agents, <laughs> or 
you know, like Orthodox Jews. And I guess I'm curious, what do you hope they know about secular Israeli culture? I mean, I'm sometimes a little confused. When I went to Tel Aviv, it felt so much to me like parts of New York City or Boston yeah. or San Francisco, which is great. But then I also sometimes wondered what's Jewish about this or what's Israeli about this? And I guess I'm curious, you know, what should Americans understand about Israeli secular culture that makes it different from Boston or San Francisco or whatever? It's a good question. I also, it's like someone asked me a few days ago, what's the difference of growing up in America compared to growing up in Israel? And I said, I don't know, the accent, I really don't know. I mean, I always, I can only say it when I talk to people also in New York, I don't feel like a huge difference, or I, maybe beside of my accent, right? But I can say that, I don't know, I feel like as an Israeli, I mean, you're very exposed. I mean, you see so many like um, different cultures, maybe, you know, I mean, as for people that see suddenly Shtisel or Unorthodox, and it's completely different from them. I mean, it's not that different for me. You know, it's not just a newspaper that they see, or it doesn't have to be also orthodox. I mean, you also languages in Israel and, and countries that people are coming from, and it's so there's so much different and mixtures of like cultures there. That's so something interesting to see. I hope that there will be also a secular like Tel Avivian <laughs> TV series that will get the U.S. I think it will it will happen for sure. <laughs> so um, we talked a little bit about your portrayal of Orthodox Jews. I mean, unorthodox was pretty controversial for a lot of American Orthodox Jews. Mm -hmm. Some of them, some of them felt it was very, very unfair to the community. Yes. Did you get some of that pushback? Did that make its way to you from Orthodox and Haredi communities saying it makes Haredi Judaism look just unhappy and bleak? It was always there, even when I, we filmed it in my head, also in everyone's heads. I mean, to try to show a complex picture. Not a show with black and white. I mean, it is a story about a woman who's running away and finding her better place outside of an Orthodox community. And it will stay like that. It was obvious. It will, there will be some criticism, obviously, about the ultra-Orthodox world. In this project, you can take Stissel and it's the other way around, right? I mean, that's the beauty in art at the same time. But I can say that while we were filming, it was very important for us to be very specific on the details, on the rituals. It was important for everyone to show as much as possible a complex picture. Also, the fact that you love Yankee, my husband, in the show so much at the end, it, it kind of like shows it. But obviously, with that being said and with that being always in my head, I knew that it will happen eventually. And I did get some comments like that. Nothing too brutal. And again, I even in a way <laughs> expected more, but I got it and I respected it. I really understood it. I mean, it's hard, but it's part of like art. You know, you do movies, you do television, like you have Shtisel, you can have an Orthodox. There's place for any everyone's stories. There are Estes out there, you know, mm -hmm. even though it's not the majority, I believe that. They are, and they deserve the story to be told. And it's not even about only ultra-Orthodox. I mean, so many people that felt like they're having the same trauma, but not even Jewish wrote me. So it's a, a story that it's important to tell. And I understand that it brings also kind of like triggers and negative feelings to people. And I respect that, really. I honestly, every time that someone said it to me, I don't even argue with them because I can understand it. I can relate to it in different things that I see. And it's part of it, you know. Are you religious at all? I'm not religious, but I do have like Shabbat dinners with my family. I do celebrate holidays. I do. I mean, 
I do celebrate my Judaism in a way, but I'm not religious. <laughs> right. I should have I should have been more specific. I mean, on the big continuum of of American Judaism, like if you're having Shabbat dinners, that's religious. Oh, you know? so, okay. <laughs> so I'm super. I try to have. I don't have it all the time, but I try to. I mean, when I'm in Israel with my family, so yeah, I'm super religious then. <laughs> there you go. You're super, super duper religious. You're in New York right now. Is that? Are you shooting something there? No, we we had the premiere for Asia right here, the film forum because it's out here now, and we. The premiere and some press and uh, celebrating. Also, cinema is back here, right. which is very exciting, amazing. And we saw people that watching our film, which is crazy. And also, it was like part of the Tribeca Film Festival last year because it won some awards. So now this year, kind of like also having a panel and kind of like re-celebrating what we deserved in this COVID. <laughs> I know. I feel so bad for everyone who had a beautiful project come out into COVID. Reach people's problem, right? It's okay. They, yeah. Well, sure. But still, it's you worked yeah, on yeah, this. And you, wanted, you wanted to have an audience. And so what are the next projects? I've read that you're excited to do other things in the industry, like direct at some point. And yes. what are you working on now? What is the future? There's a project called Lioness, which is based on Golda Meir's life. Early years, early years. In Milwaukee? In Milwaukee as well, yeah. Are you playing Gold in my year? Yes, I am. I mean, it might take a while. Yeah, oh my God, your face is shocked. <laughs> uh, yeah, it might take a while that I'm writing it right now. It will, it will take some time. But it's about her early years, which we don't know much of. And they're fascinating and interesting and complex and beautiful. And she is all of the above as well. So it's really about those years, which is very exciting. It's called Lioness. It will take time, but it's exciting. And there are some other stuff that I hope to soon to be announced. Sorry. <laughs> That's fabulous. I'm still stuck on, as my face shows, on Golda. I mean, first of all, I've, I've interviewed a couple times Tova Feldshu, who played yeah. Golda right yeah. on Broadway. And so I will be one of the leading interviewers of people who portray Golda Meir. But also as somebody who's very good at accents, you're going to have to do early 20th century Milwaukee, which will be yeah. amazing. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know what that sounds like, but I bet it's just fabulous. I bet it's a fabulous regional American accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's see. I don't know. We haven't started it yet, but it will definitely be challenging. And it's also Milwaukee. It's also her years in Israel. It's not only there. She also was in Kiev before. Yeah, she has like, she's been through a lot. And it's time to tell that she deserves that, I think. That is terrific. Well, I hope you'll come back then. Thank you, me too. Shira Haas, thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. And congratulations again on Asia, which I mispronounced earlier, calling it Asia. No, it's okay. Well, I mean, I... Very American. I, I love that, actually. There we go. There <laughs> we go. We'll make a virtue out of it. And uh, thanks so much for being on Unorthodox. <laughs> thank you. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. 
We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, mailbox. For the mailbox, two strong, strong letters this week. We'll begin with this week's chastisement of me. We'll begin, as is traditional, with the chastisement <laughs> of Mark. Take it away, Stephanie. Allow me. This comes in from Bururia Bat Avraham Avinu Vesera Imenu. Dear Unorthodox, in this week's episode, Mark noted that Simon Tov, Umazatov should be reserved for brises and b'nai mitzvah. Simon Tov Umazatov expresses joy in becoming a Jewish adult at 12 or 13. Why not the same joy in becoming a Jewish adult at 30-something? Hearing my Beit Din singing that song after my final immersion in the mikvah brought tears of joy to my eyes. Shabbat Shalom. I love this idea that, like, if we sing it for 12 and 13-year-olds, we should sing it for adults, too. But I think, Mark, you were right that we need it. We should just still get a new song. Right. I just wanted to add some sort of trumpet fanfare or new song for adult converts. But I, t- I totally take this point. It's a great point. I love this next letter, too. I'll read it. Mark, Liel, and Stephanie, and Josh. I'm a loyal listener, and as a resident of the great Garden State, I'm feeling overlooked and unloved. In this week's episode, you spent much time discussing Mark's mistaking the random Pennsylvania town in which Prime (laughs) Minister Netanyahu grew up. Old news! The new news is that the new Israeli Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, spent two of his formative years, third grade and fourth grade, in beautiful Teaneck, New Jersey, attending Yavne Academy. This has to be the first time in history that a leader of a country educated in New Jersey replaced a leader educated in Pennsylvania. And it's a bit crazy that the leaders are not <laughs> Americans, but Israelis. Very truly yours, Mr. Ariel Dibner or Diebner, Maplewood, New Jersey. Man, I endorse <laughs> every single bringing word of this letter. Go Teaneck. Go Yavne Academy. Go New Jersey. This is hilarious. All we have to figure out now is if, if Naftali Bennett had lunches at Dougie's because then it would just be a perfect story. If he had that kosher poppers. When in Cleveland, does he eat at Jack's or at Lenny's? I too love everything about this letter right down to the fact that he he signed with his own honorific, Mr. Ariel Dibner. He wants to say, I'm not just Ariel. I'm not Dr. Dibner. I'm not Rabbi Dibner. I'm just a good old Democratic Mr. Ariel Dibner. He's bringing respect back to Jersey as well. He deserves. I also think that he's indicating his gender because he has a name that is Ah, It's true. Ariel can (laughs) cut many ways gender-wise. Not flexing as much as you think he might be, but... (laughs) I also love the, the, the trope of people saying, you know, this famous Jew attended this day school once upon a time for this particular grade. A trope I know well since Natalie Portman attended like second grade at my children's day school, Ezra Academy, because I believe 
one of her parents was a postdoc at Yale and they were living in Greater New Haven. Before they moved to Syosset and took a limo to prom with someone that my mom's friends' kids know. In the same prom limo. Don't ask me to get more specific than that because I cannot. This is the important stuff. This makes the world go around people. Yeah, and it makes Jewish journalism thrive. I think there are some magazines devoted entirely to this kind of coverage. Let's have people write in with the famous Jewish celebrity who is like an <laughs> alumna of your camp or your school. This will get us through the summer. 914-570-4869. You know who called that number was somebody who had a really, really interesting sounding voicemail, but a lot of it was really garbled. And I want him to call back. It was Alan somebody. Uh, he was from the 901 area code. He was from South Carolina. You left me a voicemail, Alan. And it sounded like you were speaking some righteous truths, like you were dropping truth bombs. But I couldn't for the life of me tell what you were saying. So I want, I want to hear back from Alan, as we want to hear from all of you, unorthodoxatabletmag.com or 914-570-4869. Our next guest is the one and only Daniel Oppenheimer, who returns to the show to tell us about his latest book on the writer Dave Hickey. If you do not remember, Daniel Oppenheimer is brother of our own Mark Oppenheimer, also a writer in his own right. His work has been featured in the Washington Post, the New Republic, Tablet Magazine, and more. And we were very excited to talk to him about his latest book. It's a pleasure to welcome straight out of Austin, Texas, my younger brother, Dan Oppenheimer. Thanks for having me. You were the one who pushed the writer Dave Hickey on me in the first place some 20, 25 years ago. That's such an older brother move, an older sibling move. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Dan and I are always pushing things on each other. Few of them have legs like this. Well, I'll let you tell the story. I mean, why don't you why don't you say something about who Dave Hickey is and why you've written this book about him? Dave Hickey is an art critic and essayist. He had an interesting peripatetic life. He was a graduate student at the University of Texas at Austin. He opened a gallery, a contemporary art gallery in Austin in the late 60s that was really one of the first contemporary art galleries in, in all of Texas that was hip to what was going on with the counterculture and, you know, other currents in the 60s. And then in the late 80s, he sort of found his voice as a critic and wrote two books in particular, Air Guitar, which is the one you gave to me. And then I think we both separately went back and read his previous book, The Invisible Dragon, which was about the role of beauty in art. And those two books were really bunker-busting bombs in the art world and really shaped discourse in the art world and the art critical world for, for a long time after. And even to this day, he's people still know who he is. They still care about him. Some people love him. Some people hate him. So that's who he is. You know, this was interesting to me. I actually didn't know who Dave Hickey was because I'm an uncultured heathen, I guess. But there's <laughs> stuff about you in this book that I, I really found fascinating because you say that he sort of helps you understand your own life, your own inheritance. Can you explain a little bit about that? As someone who has heard Mark overshare for five years, I want to know about you. It's coming up on six years, Butnick. I want to get into your head. <laughs> Be interesting to hear if Mark experienced this in the same way, but I, I, I read the book right out of college. One of the things about Hickey that I find most interesting and compelling is he's a real critic, I think, of the world that in some ways Mark and I came out of. So we grew up in, I won't go into too much depth because I think listeners to the podcast probably know way too much about Mark. Don't drop too much truth on them because I've carefully <laughs> constructed certain myths about where we came out of that you could destroy in, in mere seconds. Right. What I should have said is I don't want to destabilize Mark's false narrative about our family, so I won't go into too much depth. <laughs> Thank you. We grew up in Massachusetts amongst, you know, highly educated college graduates who were into the things that liberals and lefties are into and had certain values. Rice cakes. <laughs> 
cooperative daycare centers. Mark, stop <laughs> interrupting your little brother. Let him talk. Right. Natural peanut butter in which the oil separated from yeah. the, the peanut, etc. But we have we had certain aesthetics that I would characterize. I think in the book I, I characterize them in, in different ways. One was was as Jewish minimalism. One was a kind of Northern European austere aesthetics, low key. Some of it's inherited, honestly, even though we were Jewish, obviously, some of it I think is inherited from just kind of understated wasp, blue blood aesthetics that we, our family assimilated at some point along the way to, to assimilate into our sense of what that upper crust culture was. But it was, a, it was an aesthetics that sort of was hostile to too much excess, to the Baroque, to too much announcing of the fact that you were interested in how things looked and cared about how you were perceived. And I probably overplay this a little bit in the book, but what I say about Dave, to get back to your question, Stephanie, in a roundabout way, what I say about Dave is, is he really kind of opened up my eyes, I think, to some of the ways in which that whole worldview was kind of pleasure denying and oppressive in various ways. And I had thought of it really as an extension, I think, of kind of progressive politics and the liberal liberal lifestyle. And, and Dave's perspective really came at that from a kind of unexpected angle to say, no, actually, this is a form of Puritanism. This is a form of kind of the just old-fashioned American pleasure-denying Puritanism. And he kind of blew that up for me in a way that was really profound, just kind of genuinely profound. I don't know if Mark experienced him in the same way, but for me, it kind of opened up, I think, a lot of avenues about how to think about my life, how to experience art and culture, you know, even what clothes to wear, what to put on the walls of my apartment or whatever that was that has kind of shaped me in a lot of ways ever since. Is another way to put that is just occurring to me now that he basically blew up your our notion of class, that there were reasons that we were taught to disdain Norman Rockwell and McDonald's and Las Vegas and all these things. And he said, basically, Fuck that. Like that hierarchy is not important in the way you think it is. And if that stuff is fun or moves you or is beautiful, do it. Is that a fair way to put it? I think that's absolutely right. I think it is a class thing. I think part of the sort of worldview of our class of the Northeast corridor elite or the educated elite. And I, this has changed in some ways since we were growing up, but in other ways, it's probably just intensified, I think, is to mistake a certain kind of aesthetics for political morality or morality. That McDonald's is bad because, I mean, and you could come up with all sorts of political and moral reasons for it, but I think in truth, it's often just an expression of, it's a way of distinguishing ourselves from people who are lower down from us on the, on the class ladder. And I think it's very easy when you grow up immersed in that culture to sort of not differentiate those things, to see them as an expression of morality or politics, when really they're an expression of differentiation from people you perceive of as lower than you on the class hierarchy. Uh, and it's bullshit. And it seems to me like the Jewish immigrant experience in America, right? Like you get here, your kids, you want your kids to go to a good school. Like this idea of this cultural elite, this highly educated, this, there's no, no frills, basically. That to me seems like it's not just the Northeast, you know, it's not just Springfield. Like I think actually it's probably a familiar concept to a lot of people. You strive, you, you are serious. You don't go to Las Vegas. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you have to be sort of serious and studious. I mean, that to me, there's a very easy line from from Jewish textual everything there. The intersection with Jewishness and Jewish history in America is really complicated because on the one hand it's that, on the other hand, and, and, and Hickey writes about this, part of it is is also the issue around striving, right? So if you think about the classic Jewish, you know, immigrant or child of immigrant who gets here and is a real gunner in high school and goes off to whatever colleges would accept him, you know, let's say Columbia University or, you know, the few that would get into Yale. And there's a there's an unalloyed or unapologetic striving to achieve 
and make money and acquire status that was actually at the time perceived by, you know, the WASP elite as really déclassé, as really like gauche. gauche and vulgar. And that's another thing, actually, that Hickey says, you know, that's kind of bullshit, too, that actually he's a defender of a certain amount of that. And there's, a, there's an amazing essay. I mean, maybe my favorite essay in everything he's written about a professor he had who was a refugee from the Nazis. He had this German theater studies professor when, at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, who becomes a vehicle for Hickey's philosophy. But he talks about the ways that the German austere art should be a vehicle of politics and morality, really disdained the Jewish art dealers, the gallerists, the theater producers, the ones who wanted to create all art, but also wanted to make a buck. So it's super complicated. It's like on the one hand, yes, it's like that sort of seriousness and austerity has become an expression of a certain strand of Jewish culture in America, but it's also in a way can be perceived as a rejection of a certain kind of Jewish comfort with commerce and striving and, and achievement. In a way, let me get in touch with my sort of inner Augie March or something like that. My, my, inner, <laughs> my inner striving first generation Jewish gunner or something like that. And let me be more of that and have it more of that in myself and kind of let go of some of the, the Jew who has to be too careful about that stuff so as not to be gauche in the eyes of the wasps or something like that. Right. I mean, I'm watching I'm watching Babylon Berlin on Netflix about Weimar Germany. And Weimar Germany was this sort of highly commercialized society where the dealers and the hustlers and the people making a buck sort of controlled the culture. And then that was overthrown by the Nazis who decided there was going to be an unofficial culture. And that the essay you're talking about, isn't it called My Weimar? My Weimar. Yeah, that's right. Right. And Hickey dropped out of grad school, which he felt was, you know, run by these official commissars who told you what to think to open what? An art gallery. <laughs> to him, like making a buck was not just Jewish, but democratic and liberating because instead of value being determined by like whoever held the endowed chair or the whoever the bureaucrat was in charge of your district, it was determined by the masses, whether they would buy your stuff. By the masses. And also there was risk. Also, you were putting yourself on the line. I mean, that was, it wasn't just about money. It was about the dealer was somebody who, you know, or think of him in particular, somebody who sort of passed up on the, the secure at the time sort of academic life with a salary and benefits to just put his life on the line. I mean, he had no inheritance, right? For him to persist in doing this and for the artists to persist in doing what they were doing, they had to make money to do it. And so there was real sort of blood and guts in the game, as opposed to the ways in which official culture can kind of set up all these conduits where if you please the commissars, if you please the gatekeepers, you don't actually have to sell anybody anything. It's like sanitized. It's sanitized. It's proper. It pays, you know, obeisance to the whatever the gods of whatever, in this case, progressive or could be conservative morality are at the time. And therefore, they will re reward you and give you a sinecure and you'll have benefits and you'll be a tenured professor. But you actually don't have to put yourself on the line by being out there, by being so persuasive and compelling to people that they want to give you money for it. <laughs> you just have to reaffirm whatever the, the conventional orthodoxies are so they'll give you the sinecure. I have a theory for you that I'd like to test out. I think one of the most annoying things in the world would be to have a sibling who is a podcaster. <laughs> if it's your kid, you're like, oh, I'm so proud of them. If it's your parent, you're like, that's embarrassing. But like, it's probably very annoying to know that like Mark goes on a podcast once a week and just says whatever he wants with no fact checker there. That would be like your your, your childhood nightmare. So what's your question? The question is it is, annoying? Am I bothered? <laughs> like sometimes my sister's like, oh, you said that thing about me on the show. And I was like, I completely don't even and remember that. But yeah, I must have shared something personal about you on your on my podcast. All right. Well, let's let me give three answers to that of, of varying levels. I like of that diplomatic. You're going to try for Kate? <laughs> Provocation. In the course of saying that, I forgot what two of them were. 
One of them is there was, of course, the great vasectomy crisis of 2017 or 2018. That's an OG reference. Like new listeners won't, we'll have to find the, the episodes for them. When Mark made fun of me for my vasectomy on air. And he then did I that? was genuinely, and actually Liel too, I think you were the only one who slightly had my back. I mean, it feels like none of my business to be even opining. <laughs> but anyway, Mark and Liel had great fun at the expense of my vasectomy. And I was genuinely offended. Like I'm smiling as I say that, but I was actually at the time genuinely offended. So that was, that sucked. I don't typically confront Mark about, you know, but I, I was upset about that. So there was that moment. So that's, that's answer number one. Answer two is, I guess, yeah, I mean, there's, there's tensions. I mean, Mark of the four of us siblings is the one who has constructed a narrative of our family for the public. I've done it a little bit. I did it a little bit in this book, but Mark is the one who's written a memoir and, you know, talks about stuff on, on air and has had us on the, you know, on air and things like that. So sure, there's tension around that. I don't know. I don't always agree with, you know, how he characterizes our family and things like that. So sometimes, sometimes it's annoying, not because I think he's doing anything wrong. It's just, it is shared turf, right? So it's pretty natural. I think the third answer is, I mean, by and large, no, like I really enjoy the podcast. I think he's exceptionally good at it in a way that I'm just not. So it sort of takes it a little bit out of the whatever sibling rivalry there would be around writing stuff where, you know, who's the better writer, you know, who's taking on which subjects. I like podcasting. Maybe I'll do some podcasting at some point, but I don't think I'm a natural podcaster or on-air person in the way Mark is. So that's, it's, it's nice in that way to be able to be appreciative of his talents in that way that doesn't feel like it's a, a threat to my own ego, because I just don't think that's a, that's a thing that I can do with the sort of ease and, and capacity that he has. That was a beautiful answer. I didn't mean to probe too much. You didn't mean to probe too much? I mean, it's even- After I asked the question, I was like, oh, I forgot about vasectomy gate. <laughs> so you dedicate this book, though. You dedicate this book to your parents, Joanne and Tim Oppenheimer. I have met them. They are lovely people. That is a power move. I like that. Yes. In fact, well, they're visiting me in Austin right now. I haven't seen them for a long time because of COVID, but, but we're all vaccinated now. So they're visiting me. And I hadn't told them that I was dedicating it to them. I had sent them a PDF of the book so they'd read it, but I don't think it had the dedication in it. So my mom picked it up, you know, on the island in our kitchen and was just kind of flipping through it. She'd read it, but she hadn't. She, had she, she read it? Well, <laughs> she quoted she, book edit, she? but she paused and I kind of think was genuinely moved. This surprised me, but was genuinely, she said, you dedicated the book to us. So that was kind of a moment. I think about my parents that what they gave to us, and I think Mark would agree with this and my, and, and Jonathan and Rachel was, even though it was a strongly political household and there was no doubt as to what their beliefs were, there was some space for us to have our own that didn't seem like it would be experienced by them as a rejection of who they were or of our family or something like that. And I think what that, you know, in the context of this book and why it made sense to dedicate it to them was that here's a book about this guy who one of the things he did for me was kind of blow up or reframe or or provide me some liberation from this worldview that I had inherited primarily from my parents. So he could do that for me. And yet it didn't seem like me going down that path would be experienced by my parents as a rejection of them. No, I love that. I mean, I also think it's a real credit to parents when your children can be introspective about how they were raised. I mean, not it's not like selling your parents. I don't know. I think that's something really, really cool that you guys were encouraged to be so analytical, intellectual, overeducated. What is it? Eastern seaboard cultural elite. But like <laughs> it allowed you to actually like turn that. I don't know. 
Mark, you've been really quiet. This is, you've been too quiet. I like your questions for my brother. I've, I've, there's little I haven't asked him. Well, I haven't given him a noogie yet, so that's it's going really well. <laughs> Dan was much stronger than I was at the age when I would have been noogieing him. This is the New England champion wrestler here. I don't think I can complain of a history of being coercively noogie. Physically bullied. Right. There wasn't a lot of that in our household. The torture was mostly sly and psychological. psychological. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I want to go back to Stephanie's question from before, the one she started with, where she was asking about the permission that the book gave you to be different. And I'm actually curious. You answered by saying, well, yeah, he, you know, there were things that I, the Big Mac or whatever, I'm imposing that answer a little bit, is something that was day class A growing up. And you and I sort of joke about the list of things that we both, you know, when we're in Bed Bath & Beyond and we see the display bedrooms with the beds with so many pillows, and (laughs) that just feels like we both look at that and whether the sort of unpleasant term that comes to our mind is sort of trashy or goyish or day class A or like insert offensive term for other people here. We both have that sense of like, mom would never, we couldn't have that in our house. Right. And I'm curious. <laughs> have that many pillows. So many fucking carpet, pillows, right? Carpet, wall-to-wall carpet. No. Oh my God. Bed skirts. They're like fabric, <laughs> misused excesses of fabric somehow. Things that match too much. <laughs> oh. <Yeah. laughs> so then you read Hickey and he basically shows you a lot of this stuff is, you know, class is just the residue of other people's privilege. That's his line, right? I think it's taste is the residue of other people's privilege, yeah. Right, it's just a way of privilege expression. So having read that and having had your mind blown. Are there pleasures you can now enjoy that our our patrimony would not have approved of? Is there a kind of decadence? And you feel like our parents were sometimes too self-denying, too abstemious. You know, are you doing poppers? Are you swinging? Are you (laughs) eating at a lot of happy meals? Like what, seriously, like what do you feel you've done differently in your life because of this exposure? I will answer that, but I want to preface it by saying that it's something that I don't want to drop, that I don't want to miss because I think it could give a misimpression of of Hickey, which is like he's not a lowbrow. Like what one of the things he did, and I say this in the book, is that he dispenses with some of that stuff without sort of, while at the same time being a kind of elitist in a more democratic way, (laughs) which is, you know, he's all about sort of, I mean, he's all about art and beautiful art and sometimes difficult art and living a life that privileges literature and art and music and culture and so on. So his project is not, I mean, some of it is about dignifying the pleasures of kind of regular mass culture or fast food or whatever, but a lot of it is about dedicating yourself to things, I don't think you'd say they're higher, but just to things that are, you know, maybe traditionally are considered high culture, but experience them in a, in a way that's pleasurable and, and intense and, and excessive and things like that. So he's not just a defender of the Star Wars franchise or something like that or McDonald's. But the answer to that is, and I would say the irony or maybe not the irony is if you looked at the sort of aesthetic of my household, it, it probably looks totally indistinguishable from our parents. It's I'm still probably practicing Jewish minimalism. There's no pillows. You know, there's few pillows. <laughs> on a lot of natural heads. wood. No dust ruffles. No dust ruffles, all hardwood floors. We live in the neighborhood in Austin that looks the most like the one my parents live in where they are. And I mean, it's all like, I'm, I'm just a fraud. Like it's all, I'm totally inhabited. <laughs> aesthetic but you know so there's some little touches like what are some little touches like um we just bought a smart lock where you can like put in the code i think my parents would never do that we spend a little money on mattresses our mattresses have like some foam on the top of them (laughs) good for you my parents mattresses living it up incredibly hard gratuitously hard (laughs) (laughs) in a house that's gratuitously underheated by the way (laughs) oh yeah also ironically my wife is more austere on all of these axes than i am shockingly not so shockingly right psychologically so we have battles about how much (laughs) i'm going to heat the house or cool it in summer 
I'm trying what what other <laughs> indulgences I have. You know, another one. This is this is a funny one, but it's it goes back to the sort of Jewish tradesman is. I have been in a sort of quiet way. I've been kind of relentless about promoting this book and trying to not be ashamed about that because I really care about it. And it's a really special book. And I think with my first book, I was kind of too self-effacing and that it's vulgar to go out and try and get people to pay attention to the stuff that, you know, you care about. And I have been, I think over time, progressively got more and more comfortable when I'm in a space where I feel good about what I'm doing or, or what I'm writing or things like that. In trying to get it out into the world, I think that's something, but it, I mean, it, it wouldn't necessarily be visible externally, but that's a way in which I think the way I live my life. And again, maybe to the outside world, that would, I, I wouldn't look like that at all. You know, I'm still my, my parents' children, but, but it's one of the things that I've done. And, you know, I, I think this is a, a special book. I really like it. I think people will really like it. It's also, by the way, I don't want to fail to mention, it's really short. So for people who are daunted by long books, it's a really short book. You can read it in a few hours. We're living in a pretty austere time where I think some of the tendencies that Hickey was critiquing in the 90s, which kind of went away, have, have kind of roared back with an extraordinary force, both on the left and then in different ways. I mean, he was kind of more going after the left institutions, but on the right too. I mean, we, we kind of live in a time when, when nobody seems to be entirely okay with pleasure or culture that isn't signaling some kind of tribal or political or moral affiliation. Well, our tribal affiliation, our moral affiliation is to you, Daniel Oppenheimer, <laughs> and we will help you shamelessly promote your book. It is called Far From Respectable, Dave Hickey and His Art. Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for bearing your soul. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for asking probing questions. You know, that's Stephanie. what we're here for. <laughs> thanks, Dad. Say hi to mom and dad for me. Yeah, say hi to Tim and Joanne. Will do. Mazel tovs. Liel, do you have a mazel tov? I would like to extend a hearty mazel tov to our friend and colleague at Tablet Magazine, the great Jacob Siegel and his wife, Daniela, who recently welcomed into the world the unimprovably named Sol Siegel. Even though Sol is just a few days old, he already is a contributing editor at City Journal because his name is Sol Siegel. I have to say, there's a tablet baby boom. We have a lot of colleagues out on leave right now. Our new colleague, Jeremy Stern, has a new baby, Gabriel Stern. And our colleague, Sean Cooper, has a Sadie Cooper. So we are really bringing back the strong names. We have Gabriel, Sadie, and Saul. Stephanie Butnick, this puts a real onus on you because you can't go with like... Yeah, Baby Myrtle is going to be really excited to meet them. You can't go with like Whitney now or right. something like that. You Brooklyn. have to do like Zadie. No, it's got to be Gladys. Esther. I like that Sean has a baby, Sadie, tells you everything you need to know about Judaism in America. When, when Sean's are having Sadie's, we're not going anywhere, people. I mean, literally, we're not because we keep multiplying. That's right. <laughs> we can afford to go anywhere with all these babies. I have a shout out. We have a lot of listener mazel tovs, but before we get there, I have a shout out. I heard from Jonathan Ornstein, who runs the Krakow JCC and has been on the show. He just told me about Holocaust Survivor Day, which is something they just sort of invented. It's on June 24th. It's the day this episode airs. HolocaustSurvivorDay.com. There's apparently a bunch of events happening. And as he says, what do Jews need if not another holiday? So I'm very excited about that. Amazing. Some listeners wrote in. Stacey Freed writes, I'm hoping you can give a mazel tov to my nephew, Jake Freed. He works for New Jersey Representative Frank Pallone, and he helped write the Homeless Veterans Credit Act. When Representative Pallone presented it in the House, he said, Madam Secretary, let me just thank my staff member, Jake Freed, who basically came up with the idea. Stacey Freed, 
a mazel tov to your nephew, Jake. He never would have gotten there without cool Aunt Stacy. And this is an amazing mazel tov. This comes in from friend of the show, mom of the show, Lori Sagarin. She's writing to give a mazel tov to her daughter, Eliana, who we all met when we were in Israel on our various meetups there. She is after three postponed weddings, finally getting married to Tal Klein. On July 30th in Tel Aviv, Lori has just returned from a month of planning in Israel and she's she's ready. Eliana, she says, continues to be an avid listener and she and her friends all discuss the show together. Eliana, we're so excited for you and Tal. And, you know, I guess our invite, our evite got lost on the interwebs, but um, we'll be there. <laughs> July 30th, save the date. Should we crash our wedding? <laughs> Just like the Israeli government, it took you three or four or five times, but eventually you got there. Mazel tov. A mazel tov to my friend Jonathan Pitt, who turned 49 this past Monday. He is, of course, the proprietor of the unimprovably named Pittsmere Farm and also now Pittsmere Farm East. And finally, a happy birthday to our producer, Sara Fredman Ader. May you be with us for many, many, many more birthdays. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us, especially with Yom Kippur apology stories, 914-570-4869. If you want to buy our stuff, go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Again, to Sarah. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Artwork by Esther Werdiger. Theme music by Golem. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Simcha dancing by Laurie Horwitz Duhan. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Michael Schwab of North Suburban Synagogue Bethel in Highland Park, Illinois. And we come to you again from our basements named Argo. Shalom, friends. Can I just say the one thing that you all missed about the bald people wearing yarmulkes is it's sweat gravity. And if you don't shave the parts that have hair for like two days, you get like natural Velcro that you get some grip. Rips oh, it's like traction. Oh, that's amazing. Natural Velcro is a great name for a band. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a, it's a Howard Jones style, like 1983 electronic rock band. Yeah. I'm Josh and we're natural Velcro. There's probably an electric violin in there. Right, right, right. And the double guitar, the double next guitar, yeah. is that in there too? The Mellotron? Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Do the members of Natural Velcro, are they all balding men with a few days stubble on their head? Is that their look? <laughs> Even the women. And they just put stuff in the back of their heads. Different stuff, not just yarmulke. You know, electricity bills, laundry. Gold stars. 